You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, good morning, Cities Church. It is great to be with you here on this lovely, brisk Sunday morning. I walked out this morning to take my dog out. It was like 12 degrees and he didn't want to go. Let's get a move on, Cooper. Let's do this. We got, we got, we got places to be. <clears throat> this morning is the eighth and final sermon in our Leviticus series. And I, I have absolutely loved this series. It has been so rich and insightful and encouraging and challenging all at the same time. And then next week, God willing, we will launch our Advent series for 2022 as we look forward to Christmas time, the coming of our King, which I am excited about. Over the last several weeks, we've, as we've looked through Leviticus uh, chapters 1 through 22, um, we have seen God display His willingness, the length He will go to declare us clean so that we can enter into His presence. That's what we've seen. And now today we're going to look at the last few chapters, chapters 23 through 27. My plan is to kind of give you a, an overview of all of the chapters, 23 to 27, and then we'll hone in on one section uh, in Leviticus 24 that I think alludes to one particular theme that we can take with us that I think will be helpful for us. Before we do that, let's pray again. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that we can come into a place like this without fear of being arrested or persecuted. Thank you for the liberties we have in this land. Thank you for this building. Thank you for this church, this congregation. Thank you. You have been so kind to us. Thank you for your many provisions. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. God, you are merciful, gracious, slow to anger. You are rich in love. God, thank you. I praise you. Thank you for the book of Leviticus, God. Thank you that this, that this book gives us great insights into your work on our behalf. God, I thank you for the rich theology that is rooted in the book of Leviticus. The, thing, the themes of the New Testament that are clearer to us because we read the book of Leviticus. Thank you for this book. It is so helpful to us. And now, God, I ask, as we embark on this final sermon in this book, Lord, will you use your word this morning to transform your people? Will you use the words of Leviticus this morning to comfort us, encourage us, to strengthen us? Would you do that, please? Would you use these words to mold us to be more like Jesus? Maybe walk out of this place more like Jesus than when we came in. I ask that for all of us. Amen. Well, over the last several weeks, as we've traveled through Leviticus, we've seen a tension of sorts, this, this tension. But it doesn't start in Leviticus. It actually starts way back in the book of Genesis. And the tension has been rising and building. The tension is this, that God is holy. We are sinful. God is inviting us into his presence, but we cannot join him because of our sin. God is holy and he wants us in his presence, and yet we cannot come into his presence because of our sin. 
This tension is building. How will God solve this problem? And we have seen throughout the book of Leviticus that God has solved this problem. One of the examples we see is with Moses himself. At the very end of the book of Exodus, Moses cannot enter into the tent of meeting because the presence of God is there and his sin will not allow him to enter. And yet at the beginning of the book of Numbers, we see that Moses enters back into the tent of meeting. So at the end of Exodus, he can't go in. At the beginning of Numbers, he can go in. What happened? Well, in between Exodus and Numbers is Leviticus. What happened? Leviticus happened. Leviticus is the path that allows us to enter into the presence of God. In and of ourselves, we are dirty, we are sinful, we are unclean, sinners by choice and by nature, and this keeps us from the presence of God. A few weeks ago, Pastor Joe gave us the illustration of the sun. It would be like us wanting to be in the presence of the sun, but if God came into our midst while we were sinful, it would be like the sun coming into your house. It would burn you up and it would burn everything up around you. We couldn't handle that. And yet God is inviting us, beckoning us to come into his presence. God wants to dwell amongst his people. This is the tension we've seen building throughout Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. And finally, in the chapters of Leviticus, we see God developing this very elaborate system which solves the problem. And it culminates in Leviticus chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement. Pastor Jonathan preached about a few weeks ago. There's this moment in Leviticus 16 where God establishes this sacrificial system by which our sins are forgiven, primarily by the use of a substitute. There are these two goats in Leviticus 16. Our sins, the sin of the people of Israel, is placed on these goats, and these goats suffer the consequences of the sin. Our sin is transferred to the substitute. In Leviticus, the sins of the people of Israel transferred to the goats, imputed to them, the goats suffer the consequence. And that, of course, is an imagery of our substitute, Jesus Christ. He is the sacrifice that God has provided. Our sins are transferred to Jesus. They're imputed to him, and Jesus has suffered the consequences for our sin. And now, if you are a believer in Jesus, your sins have been wiped clean. You have been forgiven. You have been declared clean. And now you can enter into the presence of God. As a believer in Jesus, your sins have been transferred to him. The work at the cross, the brutal punishment that Jesus took is sufficient for you. And if you believe on him, you are declared clean, righteous, pure, and you have the privilege of entering into the presence of God. What an amazing privilege we have that I can come before a holy God and not burn up because that's what I would deserve. So the first half of Leviticus is developing this system. The first 16 chapters shows us how God has developed the plan to make us clean. And then from chapters 17 to 27, what we see is the plan unfolding for God to keep us clean. 
So the first half of Leviticus shows us how we are made clean. The second half of Leviticus shows us how we, or excuse me, first half of Leviticus, how we became clean. Second half is how we remain clean. Uh, A few weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan looked at chapters 17 to 20, where we see very specific laws and expectations for how we'd love our neighbor. We see the Ten Commandments being leveraged there. We see various expectations being set. And last week, Pastor David looked at chapters 21 and 22, where we see various protocols for both the people and the priest. That's what we've seen. And now we arrive here at chapter 23. In chapter 23, God begins to lay out the sacred calendar. There are these times of years that the people of God are to remember what God has done. There are these times of the year where they are to pause and remember that God has done things for them. And this theme of remembrance comes up multiple times throughout the second half of the book of Leviticus, and then comes up quite a bit in the book of Deuteronomy, and then throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There's this theme, this motif of remembering. And that the idea is that remembering has a way of sustaining us. The more we remember who God is, the closer we will cling to Him. So remembering is very important. We'll come back to that in just a moment. The first few verses in chapter 23, God is beginning to give them instructions on the Sabbath. He's reminding them that every seventh day, you're going to pause and you're going to remember me. You're going to rest. You're going to worship. Right? That's the, that's the first few verses of chapter 23. And then throughout the rest of chapter 23, God then gives them instructions on the feast. So not only is once every seven days you're going to remember, but there's actually these holidays, these moments throughout the year where God is saying, you're going to pause and you're going to rest and you're going to remember. He gives various feasts. He he, he says, you're going to celebrate the Passover every year. Every year you're going to celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of the Weeks, which is Pentecost, the Feast of the Trumpets. Every year on the, uh, on the anniversary of the Day of Atonement, we see in Leviticus 16, every year there's going to be a Day of Atonement. That will be another festival. And then the last one is the Feast of the Booths, or the Feast of the Tents, the Feast of the Temporary Shelters. Each of these feasts has very specific purposes. Throughout the course of the year, the Israelites were to pause and to remember a particular thing that God had done and remember particular elements of God's grace and mercy to them. We don't have time to go through all of these feasts to kind of look through the meaning of each one of them. I'm just going to give you, go through one of them, the last one, the Feast of the Booths, just to kind of give you an idea. In Leviticus 23, verse 41, it says this. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. Seven days they're going to have this festival of booths. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
So right now, they're in the wilderness, the Jewish, the, the Israelite people. This is about two years after the Exodus, where God is giving them this instruction. And they don't know this quite yet, but they're going to be in the wilderness for another 38 years. And they're going to be living in these tents, these temporary shelters throughout that entire wilderness time. But God is looking forward to the moment when they're going to be in a permanent a nation. They're going to be in the promised land, living in permanent structures. And God is saying, listen, you're going to live in permanent housing, but once a year for seven days, I want you to go live in booths, temporary shelters, tents, because I want all the future generations to remember what it was like when this first generation was brought out of Egypt and they lived in booths for an extended period of time. And, and those of us who don't like camping think to ourselves, Oh God, why would you sanctify me this way? <laughs> My wife and I were talking about this passage. She goes, see, God likes camping. <clears throat> All right, God, I get it, I get it. Once a year, they were to go into these temporary shelters and remember what it was like. So all of these feasts we see being laid out in Leviticus 23, they each have a purpose, and that is to remind the people of God what God had done for those people. You once were slaves in Egypt, but now you've been rescued. I'm going to skip to chapter 25. In chapter 25, God begins to give similar instructions, sacred calendar, sacred times. But this time, rather than events throughout the year, God is explaining to them the different categories of years. He, the first thing he tells them is the Sabbath year. So not only is every seventh day a day of Sabbath, but every seventh year is to be a year of Sabbath. You work for six years, off, off for one. Work six years, off for one. Work six years. And God's saying there's going to be every seventh year where I want you to do, I want you to rest and remember. On the sixth year, I'm going to bless your land and give you extra crops to sustain you for that year in which you are not working. Every seventh year, I want you to do this. There's this rhythm. And then later in chapter 25, God gives them significant instructions on a thing called the year of Jubilee, which is the seventh Sabbath, after the seventh Sabbath year, right? So every seventh year is a Sabbath year. You work six years, off seven. Work six, off the seventh. Work six, off the seventh. Well, you do that cycle seven times. You get to year 49. Year 49 is a Sabbath year. And then you would expect in year 50, you go back to work. That's the first year of the next cycle. And God says, no, no, no. Year 50, you're going to have an extra Sabbath year. That's the year of Jubilee. That's, so you're going to have two back-to-back -back years of Sabbath, years 49 and year 50. And the year of Jubilee is like Sabbath year on steroids. It's way bigger. Debts get canceled, land gets returned, slaves are set free. There's all sorts of, of things that God does in year 50 that is remarkable and above and beyond what we see in the, even, even in the other Sabbath years. And there's so much there in the year of Jubilee. We don't have time this morning, but I encourage you at some point, go back and read through Leviticus 25 and see what God is doing there. This was a big, big deal. God is developing these rhythms of rest worship because he's wanting them to remember who he is. All of these things are all about remembrance. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. You were subjected to Egyptian tyranny, but God rescued them, demonstrating great mercy and grace to them. 
So God establishes this sacred calendar in chapters 23 and 25. And then in chapter 26, God begins to give them additional rules and laws, partly for the moment they are in, but also partly looking ahead. God is looking ahead to the future generations that will be in the promised land, and God is giving them very particular protocols and instructions for how they are to live. He's giving them instructions on how to treat immigrants in their land, how to treat their enemies how to treat poor people, how to treat slaves and servants, how to honor the land, how to harvest the land. God is giving them all sorts of very specific expectations. And we read these words in Leviticus 26. These are the words that Clint read for us a moment ago. Leviticus 26 verse 11, God says, I will make my dwelling among you. As you do all the things I told you to do and remember me, I'm going to come and dwell among you. My soul shall not abhor you. God says, I'm not going to hate you. That's a good thing. Man, it's so good that God says, I'm not going to treat you as if I hate you. I'm going to come and dwell among you. I will walk among you. I will be your God. You shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And we see every time that God promises to be in their midst, He reminds them of who he is. I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. I am the one that brought you out of Egypt. Do not forget who I am. Do not forget. And finally we come to chapter 27 where God gives additional expectations for the people. And these are particular lifestyle expectations. He's giving them laws around vows, tithes, contracts, real estate transactions. And then at the very end of Leviticus, God is giving them additional insights and expectations on how to bring animals to him, which animals are sufficient for sacrifices and which ones are not. This is very important because God has just given them a long list of law, rules and expectations, laws and protocols, and God knows they're going to break some of them, so they need to remember there's a sacrificial system to cover your sin. So when you sin, there's a way to get that sin forgiven. I've established that system in the first half of Leviticus. Remember, these are the types of animals you can utilize when you break these laws I've just given you. God knows they're going to fail, and he proactively reminds them on the solution that he's already given them. That's it. That's the book of Leviticus. It ends there. We're done. It's eight weeks. Except, if you notice, I skipped chapter 24. And the reason why I skipped 24 is because chapter 24 is a little bit unique in compared to all of the other chapters in the latter half of the book of Leviticus. From 17 to 27, we have a list of laws, instructions, protocols, expectations, rules, ex- uh, blessings and cursings for those that follow those rules. But then in chapter 24, we kind of see something that seems a little bit out of, the, out, of, out of sense here. It doesn't seem to fit. It's kind of awkwardly sandwiched between 23 and 25. 23 and 25 seem to go together. 23 is all about the, 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 the sacred calendar, sacred time. 25, sacred calendar, sacred time. They kind of flow right together. 24 seems to be kind of an awkward spot right here. At least it seems that way on, at, on face value. But if you look at it carefully, you actually realize that it fits perfectly here. And it gives us a, a vision or insight into something that God has for us. In fact, what we see in Leviticus 24 is a perfect picture, an illustration 
of the primary goal of the entire book of Leviticus. One Bible commentator has said, Leviticus 24 is the most important chapter of the book. In verse 24, in chapter 24, in the first four verses, what we see is that God is instructing the people to bring oil for the lampstand that is in the tabernacle. If you remember back in the book of Exodus, in the tabernacle, there is a lampstand that has seven lamps, and across from it is a gold table. And the people of Israel are to bring to Aaron, the high priest, olive oil that, they, that Aaron would use. And it's Aaron's job every day to go in or weekly to go in and to ensure that the lampstands remain on, they remain burning, and that the people are bringing this oil to him. <clears throat> um, and then in verse, starting in verse 5, we see God giving instructions to the people about this thing we call the showbread. So they've got the lampstand, seven lamps. The people are bringing oil, keeping that going. Across is a gold table in the, t- in the tabernacle. And every week on the Sabbath day, they are to bring showbread. The showbread was 12 loaves of bread. And these were significant uh, loaves of bread. Each loaf of bread would take approximately eight cups of flour to make. So these are substantially large loaves of bread. Okay, so there are 12 loaves of bread. They bring them on the Sabbath day into the tabernacle. They set them on the gold table in two stacks, six loaves in each stack right next to each other. And it's right in view or kind of in the wake of the, the light. So the light from the lampstand are shining onto the showbread. And these 12 loaves of bread symbolize, symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. So the imagery we get here is that the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people, can now come into the place where God is and the light of the glory of God shines down on them. That's the entire goal of the book of Leviticus. That's the reason why this elaborate system was set up. So that God's people who previously could not enter God's presence can now be brought into God's presence. So the showbread is a symbol of what God has done for the people. The people of God can enter into God's presence and bask in the light of his glory. Which of course is imagery for us who are believers in Jesus. That Jesus has made it possible for us to enter into the presence of God, to enjoy his presence and to bask in the light of his glory. That's the imagery we get here. Leviticus 24 gives us an image of the entire point of this entire system. Everything here was leading up to this moment. There's another image that takes place, another foreshadowing. This is where the priest at the end of the week would then come in when you're going to replace the showbread. But first the priest would eat the showbread. So the priest comes into the presence of God, sits at God's table and consumes a meal that God has provided while he is enjoying the presence of God. This is the imagery that God has for his people. For those of us who believe in Jesus, we were enemies, we were unclean, we were unrighteous, but because of Jesus, we are made clean, we are forgiven, we are made righteous. And God says, come on, come to my table. Let's share a meal. God's saying, I want to eat with you. I want to welcome you into my presence. I want you to enjoy the meal that I have given you. 
And I want you to bask in the light of my glory. This is what the entire system was all about, Leviticus. The elaborate sacrifices, the very particular tabernacle design, the, the elaborate priestly garments, the laws, the protocols, the offerings, the rituals, all of this was aimed at one thing, designed to get to this point where God's people could freely enter God's presence and enjoy Him forever. The Westminster Catechism famously says, the chief end of man, the very reason why humans exist is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Leviticus 24 gives us a picture of what God has been seeking to do. He invites us to His table to enjoy a meal in His presence and to bask in the glory of God. That's it. That is the primary focus of why this entire system was created. And immediately after God gives us this picture in the opening verses of Leviticus 24, we then kind of have, we, we break into this narrative and it feels a little abrupt. It doesn't quite seem, again, at face value to fit because from 17 to 27, we mostly have laws and rules and regulations and protocols and expectations and very particular things that they are to follow. And then all of a sudden here in Leviticus 24, we have this, we break into a story, a narrative uh, telling us about this particular man in the camp. And it starts in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 10. And in verse 10 through the rest of the chapter, what we see is that there's this man who got into a fight, and during this fight, this man curses God. This is blasphemy, and what we've learned is that blasphemy is a capital crime. Capital punishment, the death penalty is given to whomever blasphemes God in the camp of Israel. This man had committed this crime, and so he is now deserving of the death penalty, but there's a caveat here. The people don't know what to do with him because he's actually not fully Israelite. He, his mom is an Israelite, but his daddy's Egyptian. And so the people of Israel are unsure, does the laws of God apply to this guy the same way to us? Because he's not one of us, right? I mean, he's not fully us, he's half us. So do, do, they, do these laws apply to him? And so they take him to Moses and Moses doesn't seemingly know immediately. So Moses inquires of the Lord, and the Lord tells Moses, absolutely they apply to him. Because the laws of God apply even to those who are outside the people of God. And that still goes for today. There's this sentiment sometimes in our American contemporary Christian culture that like we, we can't tell people that our rule, the Christian God's rules uh, uh, you know, apply because they're not Christians. We can't hold them to the same standard. Yes, we can. The law of God applies to all people. That, that is not what we see in the pages of Scripture. Everyone is accountable to the law of God. Everyone, whether they are inside or outside. And so this man is put to death. Now, some people may think, this feels a little bit harsh. Like, he said some things. Okay, that was bad, but like, really, we're going to kill someone for some words they said? Honestly? Some people may think that, some people think that, that this is too harsh. If you think this is too harsh, or if you've heard that sentiment, I want to give you an illustration that I think might help. Um, has anyone here ever showed up to a party or an event uninvited? Raise your hand if that's you. Have you ever done that, anyone? Okay, you can raise your hand. Okay, be honest. Okay, there's all five of us. It's great. Okay, good. All right, it's good. 
I have done it. I have crashed parties, birthday parties, events, graduation parties. Listen, if I know you're having a party, I might show up. Okay, I'm just letting you know, giving you a heads up, that might happen. <clears throat> I've done this just a few times in my life, not many times in my life, but I, I've done it a few times. And uh, you know what has never happened to me when I've shown up to a birthday party or an event uninvited? I've never gotten arrested or gone to prison for it. That's never happened. It's never happened. Because that would be silly. Right? If I show up, right? If I show up to Pastor Kevin's birthday party, he's like, okay, I'm gonna have you arrested. Like, you'd be like, come on, Kev, that's a little much. What'd you think? Right? Like it's 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 awkward, it's inappropriate, like we're gonna kick you out, you're not supposed to be here, but but we're not gonna we're not gonna arrest you. We're certainly not gonna, we're not gonna kill you over this. Okay. However, I do know of someone or some ones that did show up to an event uninvited and faced being arrested for it. Yeah, they faced up to, up to 10 years in federal prison. In 2009, there was a married couple, you may be familiar with the story, in 2009, a married couple that talked their way or kind of lied their way into an event at the White House. The uh, Congressional Black Caucus was having a formal, uh, a formal dinner event. It was a fundraising event. And this married couple, uh, they snuck in, they kind of lied their way in, and they were able to get in. And, they, and it, at, in, at the event, in attendance, was then-President Barack Obama. And they took pictures of Barack they got some selfies with Barack Obama, the president, and they posted them on social media. Um, so later, after, after it was found out that they, had, that, they had, that they were not on the guest list, the Secret Service then went to arrest them and said, we're going, to, we're going to press charges against you. They were facing, here's the consequences they were facing, half a million dollar in fines, lifetime ban from Washington, D.C., lifetime ban from flying. They would be on the lifetime, no fly, fly list. They could never get on an airplane, and 10 years in federal prison. All right. This was taken very seriously. Congress called a congressional hearing and called them to testify over this. It was a big deal. They were going to get arrested. They were likely to go to prison. And actually, Barack Obama stepped in. President Obama said, we're actually going to, we're going to let this go and don't press charges. And they were actually let go because of President Obama's intervention. Why were they facing such serious charges for crashing a party. I mean, I crashed a party before. I've done it. No one was going to arrest me. I wasn't going to be put on a no-fly list. I wasn't going to be treated like I was a terrorist. I wasn't going to be you know, put in federal prison for 10 years. Here's the difference between me and them. Here's the difference. It's not the action that matters. It's who the action was against that matters. The substance of what we did, me and this married couple, the same. But who they offended was far greater than who I offended. The President of the United States demands a level of respect and reverence, demands a, a particular level of protection that maybe an average American may not have. So if I show up to Pastor Kevin's birthday party uninvited, no one's going to arrest me. But if I show up uninvited at an event where the President of the United States is in attendance, I might get arrested and suffer a serious consequence because of the person I have sinned against. In the same way, words may not seem like that big a deal, but words against God are a big deal because of who God is. God is holy, righteous, perfect, pure, 
He is the almighty creator of everything, holds the universe in the palms of his hands. He demands holiness. He demands that we honor him and when we speak against him in any way whatsoever, that is blasphemy and it is worthy of death. Friends, if you are here this morning and if you happen to be in the category of persons that would say, I don't think it's that big a deal, I would say to you, you have a very low view of God. God is bigger than you realize because cursing God is worthy of the death penalty. Absolutely. God is holy, sin is serious, and sin deserves death. Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death. Death is the paycheck that we earn. It's the wages that we are given. It's not something God arbitrarily gives you. No, no. Death is the thing we have brought upon ourselves. You deserve death. And if you do not believe in Jesus, death awaits you. What are some of the biggest lessons we learn from these passages? We look through chapters 23 through 27. There's some pretty significant lessons that we learn, but there's one particular theme that stands out the most to me, and that is the idea of remembrance. Remembering. Chapter 23 is all about the feast. The, The chapter explains the details of these feasts, and the feasts are all about us remembering who God is and what he has done. That's the theme. And then God reiterates this theme throughout the rest of the Old Testament. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, God says this, Be on your guard, diligently watch yourselves, so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen. Deuteronomy 6, 12 says this, Take care, do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 says this, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you. 2 Kings 17, 38 says this, Do not forget the covenant I have made with you. Psalm 106, verse 7 says this, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, so they rebelled by the sea. There's this idea that when we don't remember God well, it leads us to rebellion. But if we remember who God is, it keeps, it guards us from rebelling. Those of us who remember who God is daily, regularly, throughout the course of our lives, we are more likely to stay close to him. Remembering who God is and what he has done for you is one of the means that God uses to keep you close to himself. The way God has made us clean is through faith in Jesus. The way God keeps us in fellowship with himself is to remember what Jesus has done. This stuck out to me recently. I was on a on a road trip. My wife and I were driving to Texas to spend some time with her family a few weeks ago. And while we were driving to Texas, we stopped in Oklahoma City, had lunch. And then while we were there, we stopped by the Oklahoma City uh, building memorial. It's the building, a memorial site that was built uh, at the federal building that was, uh, that was bombed in 1995. Many of you probably remember this. In 1995, the Oklahoma City federal building was bombed and uh, at that site, they have built this really elaborate memorial. It's got all kinds of symbolism. It's, it's really cool. It's really well done. It's sobering. It's heart-wrenching, in fact. They've got 
a chair for each person that died on this very large lawn. 168 people were killed that day. They have little chairs for the children that were killed that day. Um, it's, again, it's, it's elaborate. It, it tells the story really well. And it kind of helps you kind of remember. And I remember being in middle school when it happened. And I remember kind of vaguely the, the events of that day. And while I was there that day, my wife and I were, we struck up a conversation with one of the park rangers there at the memorial. And he was giving us all sorts of great information. And it was like, it was like one of those guys where it's like, no one has asked me a question in a year. So I'm going to give you every information that you might ever want. Just fire hose, right? And the historian means like, yes, give it to me. And so he's, he's really telling the story well. He's pointing out all the symbolism and he's telling us about the events of that day in April of 95. And then, um, you know, he kind of paused for a moment and I can kind of see he was looking at the chairs. So I said to him, I said, uh, so why do, why do we do these things? In your opinion, why do, we, why do we have memorials like this? And I could tell he was a little bit stumped at first. He's like, huh. And then he said this. He said, well, I think... I think when we remember, we act different. That's what he said. When we remember, we, we act different. And I think that's exactly the sentiment we see on display here in the latter chapters of the book of Leviticus. When we remember God, we act different. We behave differently. We love differently. We hate differently. God wants us to remember who he is because he knows it will inform how we live our lives every day. Remembering God will inspire us to gospel mission. Remembering God will cause us to love him more and to love others more. Remembering God will cause us to hate our sin more. The fact that this man in Leviticus 24 was executed reminds me that God is holy, that sin is serious, and that my sin must be dealt with. Remembering the story of Leviticus 24 helps me to think about my sin differently. And when I realize this, Leviticus 24 actually flows quite perfectly, actually. Leviticus 23 is all about the feast, remembering God. And as I remember God, it leads me to what we see in Leviticus 24, this picture of me being in the presence of God. But if I forget God, it leads me to what we see in the second half of Leviticus 24. I forget God, I am more likely to profane his name and more likely to deserve death. I remember God, it leads me to his presence. I forget God, it leads me to blasphemy. So remembering what God has done will keep me close to him. It will fill me with gratitude. It will make me want to be like Jesus. Practical application for this morning. I have a question to ask you. Just kind of for a moment, take inventory of your own life. Are there rhythms in your life to remind you of who God is and what he's done? I like to use the phrase rhythms and spaces. There should be rhythms in your life, things that you do on a regular basis, patterns in your life that remind you what God has done in your life. There should be spaces, moments in your life where you pause, where you go somewhere, or you do something that will remind you of who God is in your life. Every Christian ought to intentionally and proactively implement things in your life that will remind you of who God is. Patterns, rituals, traditions, whatever. 
Maybe you write out a bunch of scriptures on index cards and you put them in your bathroom or your car. And every time you get in your car, you remember who God is. Maybe you walk through a catechism with your kids because it reminds you who God is. Or as Pastor Joshua was just talking about family worship. Maybe you, you set aside time for family worship throughout the course of the week. Maybe, maybe you set alerts on your phone. I do this three times a day. I have alerts that go off on my phone just to remember something about God. So my phone buzzes, a little reminder. Sometimes I'm busy and I don't see it in the moment. I get back to my phone, I see the reminder, and I just pause for a second and remember. Yeah, God has done that. And I clear it. I just pause. I have an annual rhythm. Every year on February 2nd, I go out to lunch by myself, and I remember the previous year. Because February 2nd is the anniversary of the day I first put my faith in Christ. February 2nd, 1996, in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, the Split Rock Lodge. It was a ski resort. I was in middle school, and I remember, like it was yesterday, we were in conference room D, and I sit every year on February 2nd, and I remember that moment. I remember what it was like to first believe in Jesus. And I reflect on the last year of my life, and I ask myself, have I loved Jesus better this year? And Lord, how will I love you better in the year to come? It's going to look different for every person, every family. But my, my exhortation to you is, is to intentionally orchestrate the events of your life so that you you remember who God is. Church attendance obviously is one of the things that reminds us. My wife and I have a habit of praying together every night before we go to bed. Before we go to bed, we're gonna pause and we're going to pray. It helps us to remember. Do you have intentional patterns in your life, rhythms and spaces to remind you of who God is and what he has done? And if you don't, I would exhort you today, start building some things into your calendar today. Remember who God is. Remember who he is. Because that is the mechanism God will use to keep you close to himself. And of course, there is one habit that we have as a corporate body. There is one thing that we do together every single week to remember. We come to this table every single week. We come to this table to remember that Jesus made us clean. And that because of Jesus, I can now walk into the presence of God, enjoy a meal with him, and bask in the light of his glory. We do this every single week to remember the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He rose from the dead, and he has declared you clean. We were far from God, dead in our sins, headed for hell. But God made a way for our sins to be forgiven. We were unclean. We could not enter his presence. And yet God has declared us clean through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And we come to this table every week to remember him. To remember we were outside the tent of meeting. We couldn't come in. But he made a way. That now I can come in and I can enjoy him forever. Each week we partake in this meal to remember what Jesus has done. Every week we pause and remember. In just a moment, pastors are going to come. We're going to serve the elements. First we'll serve the bread. Pass that out. Hold that. <clears throat> we'll take together. Then we'll come back. We'll pass out the wine as we do. 
each week. And this is open to everyone who has believed in Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have genuinely put your trust in him, then we invite you to partake with us. If you are here this morning, however, and you have not believed on Jesus, if you are not a genuine follower of him, I would encourage you, please let the bread and the wine pass. Do not partake in this meal that is not for you. But do not let the moment pass. Let the bread and wine pass, but do not let this moment pass. If you are not a believer in Jesus this morning, rather than taking communion with us, I implore you, take Christ instead. If you have any questions about what that means, what does it look like to be a Christian, come on up after the service. I'll be up here. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that this morning. If you want to talk about that, I'd love to pray with you. As I said, we'll pass the bread first. The bread is gluten-free. We'll partake together. Church, let's remember him. His body is a true bread. Let us serve you now.